Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. The first half of 2021 has been characterized by a very strong recovery from the pandemic recession, with a powerful pickup in GDP growth and equity markets reaching new all-time highs. As we head into the second half of the year, the US is expected to continue on its path to full recovery. But several challenges remain. More contagious variants of the coronavirus have emerged. Taxes are likely to increase. And the Fed is mulling tapering its massive bond purchases. Meanwhile, valuations across equity and fixed income markets are looking stretched. At the outset of the pandemic, the Federal Reserve took swift and aggressive action to protect the economy from a worst-case scenario. The recession was the sharpest in modern history, but it was also the shortest, thanks in large part to the Fed's actions. However, today, with economic growth surging and inflation running at its fastest pace since the 1980s, pressures are mounting on the Fed to begin reducing some of its crisis-era accommodation. While uncertainties remain about the Delta variant and the degree of labour market slack, and these might argue for a cautious approach, prolonging a period of very easy money clearly raises the risk of the economy overheating, resulting in a boom-bust recession. To discuss these issues and what they could mean for investors, I'm very glad to be joined today by my colleague Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist here at JP Morgan. So Jordan, welcome back to Insights Now. Thank you for having me, David. So to start, we recently heard from the Federal Reserve at its July FOMC meeting and clearly the main focus for investors has been on tapering the balance sheet. Did we get any new information uh, on this issue? We did get some signs that the committee may be ready to taper the pace of their asset purchases either later this year or early next year. Um, and, and just to ground everyone, since their December 2020 meeting, the Fed has been buying around $80 billion worth of U.S. Treasuries per month and about $40 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities for a combined pace of $120 billion in asset purchases. Um, also at that meeting, the committee noted that it would need to see substantial further progress in the economic recovery by way of continued strong job growth and stable inflation expectations. Now, last week, Jerome Powell uh, did acknowledge that progress has been made towards these goals. And our assessment, we feel that that's generally appropriate. The, the unemployment rate in December of last year was 6.7%. Uh, as it stands of June, it's 5.9%. Uh, moreover, realized inflation, while it has surprised to the upside, um, inflation expectations through the first quarter have grinded higher, although they have settled down at around 2.1% to 2.2%. Uh, I would also add that the statement did mention that the committee will continue to assess, uh, continue to assess progress in the coming meetings. Now, the coming meeting language was inserted into the FOMC statement in September of 2013, uh, the, the year where they had started to begin tapering the balance sheet last time around. And so what this suggests is that there may be two meetings or so uh, before the Fed at surface value, the, the, there may be two meetings or so before the, the Fed comes out with some, uh, some tapering plans. 
Now, with that said, I do think that Powell's comments at the press conference sort of walk that back uh, a little bit. The committee still wants to see um, uh, consecutive months of, of, of improvement in the labor market. And I think they still want to see some stronger degrees or reaffirming in those inflation expectations. And so we did get a, a little bit of new information, uh, but I think it's still very uncertain in terms of the path, the path forward. Um, well, of course, you mentioned 2013, and, and uh, if uh, we all remember the taper tantrum. Um, but I was thinking, you know, let's let's look at this relative 2013. What was the economic landscape like the last time they, they decided to taper? Um, and what do you think the adoption of average inflation targeting? How how and the the sort of broader assessment of labor market conditions that they're using today. How's that going to affect this this whole process relative to what we saw back in 2013? So I'll tackle the second part of that question a question before I tackle the first. Um, a year ago, the Fed adopted a new framework, flexible average inflation targeting framework. Uh, and I will say that I think there's really two uh, major things that came out of their broad monetary policy review that took place uh, last year. I think the first is that it puts more weight on bolstering the labor market and less on worrying about higher inflation. Again, more, more uh, inclusive measures of, of employment are now is what the Fed is focusing on. And I think the second piece is that uh, the Fed is certain sort of welcome to higher degrees of inflation to compensate for inflation undershoots. Uh, now, the Feds may have gotten it, you know, or been caught off guard has been more recently, the surprise to higher inflation has been, been much higher than initially anticipated. Um, but some of the differences that we see from 2013 versus today, well, the unemployment rate was, was a lot higher in 2013 than it is today. Uh, but inflation was running a lot cooler. So in the in January of, of 2013, uh, the unemployment rate was sitting at 7.9%. As I mentioned earlier, the unemployment rate sitting at the beginning of the year was closer to 6.5%. Um, and in PCE inflation, the core PCE was running throughout the year of 2013 at around one5 to 1.7%. You're obviously seeing PCE inflation, as at least as of June, P core PCE inflation running at 4% uh, year over year. So there are certainly a lot of differences from an economic perspective. And I would also mention that in 2013, we were five years into a very slow and gradual economic recovery, whereas 2021, we are in the second year of sort of a very fast um, economic economic recovery. And so I think this this further challenges the, the Fed's calculus in, in one interest rate policy, which they aren't expected to change until 2023. But I do think this does create some challenges for, in terms of how they view the, their asset purchases. Uh, they have suggested that um, they want to see those inflation expectations higher, as, I, as I've mentioned, uh, but they also want to see a continued improvement in the labor market over, over the balance of the year. Now, that could happen. Um, we know that uh, unemployment, federal unemployment assistance uh, broadly expires uh, in, in September. Um, and so we know that companies are... are uh, anticipating a, a rising wages um, in order to incentivize folks back to work. And so I do think you get uh, a, a market improvement in the labor market over the back half of this year. And, and I think this does set up uh, a reasonable economic landscape in which tapering is appropriate through the balance of 2022. Interesting. So, I mean, it does appear that the Federal Reserve is, uh, the, the Powell Fed is a lot more dovish than the, than the Bernanke Fed. I mean, they, they clearly Bernanke was talking about tapering 
well in advance of Powell in terms of where we were in the economy. But of course, you know, there's still, a lot, apart from the composition of the Federal Reserve and their attitudes, there's a lot of uncertainties out there. You've got the uh, the Delta variant and, and you've got uh, fiscal policy. And I guess, you know, the, on the negative side, you do have this widespread growth of the Delta variant. And, you know, I guess my first question is, how does that affect the Fed's timetable? And the second is, uh, we, we, it seems that we're going to have an infrastructure bill, uh, presumably in combination with a omnibus reconciliation bill, which does pump more fiscal stimulus into the economy in 2022. How would that affect the Fed's timetable? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, to, to your first part in terms of how the Delta variant is, has, is, is causing issues uh, in the stability and the durability of the economic recovery, if this persists, it could push the uh, committee in a much more dovish stance. And we shall have to sort of walk back a bit um, their, their, their plans for, for, for tapering. Um, and I think that is a risk. But when we look at the infrastructure bill, you know, that is also potentially more stimulus, providing more inflation, creating more jobs in the economy. And that could situation where they could situate the Fed in which they need to take a more of a of a hawkish stance. Now, on the infrastructure bill, um, you know, we do expect that this will likely pass the Senate this week as uh, Senate Republicans and Democrats move toward an agreement. Uh, I do think that this may get stalled uh, in the House. Um, Nancy Pelosi has stated uh, that uh, they necessarily won't look to move forward unless there is a broader reconciliation bill, which is inclusive of some of the human infrastructure that President Biden has talked about previously. Um, so there is some risk that the, the infrastructure conversation sort of stalls out here, at least over the next couple of months. I think our base case is for some sort of infrastructure bill uh, to come through. And I think this does, uh, you know, force the Fed to be situated in a slightly more hawkish stance as you have more fiscal stimulus coming into the economy um, at a time where the Fed is just getting ready to start to, to pull off the brakes here. So, you know, Jordan, not only is, is, uh, is the Fed's balance sheet a lot bigger now than it was back, say, in 2013, but also the Fed is buying a lot of bonds. I mean, it's, a, it's $120 billion total per month, $80 billion in treasuries, $40 billion in uh, mortgage-backed securities. I guess I'm just wondering from a technical perspective, are there any real challenges because of the size of this balance sheet and the, and the abundance of liquidity? Yes, yes, David, there, there are some challenges, um, in, in particular in the short-term and cash markets. Um, so our, our listeners should be aware that as the Fed grows the balance sheet via quantitative easing, uh, reserves in the banking system increase as a result. And now the regulatory environment up until March of this year meant that banks were fine parking their excess reserves at the Fed and receive the interest on excess reserves or the IOER rate as a result. Uh, however, more recently, banks have actually opted to push additional reserves into the reverse repurchase market or the reverse repo market. Um, now, not only that, but money market funds have also been piling into the reverse repo market as well because... Essentially, there just aren't enough treasury bills in the market that's out there. Now, why is that? Well, one of the ways that, well, the way that the federal government has been paying down its bills, uh, it's been through the drawdown of the treasury general account. Um, now, by the drawdown on the treasury general account, the same way that quantitative easing increases reserves, so does the drawdown on the treasury general account increase reserves in the system. 
Now, banks have also been looking, again, looking to push deposits off their balance sheet as deposits have been growing as well. And that has increased the desire for money market funds to invest in treasury bills. Uh, but again, the because of the drawdown on the TGA, the federal government hasn't been issuing a whole boatload of bonds. Uh, and as a result, as the Fed has continued its quantitative easing and purchasing of treasury bills or purchasing of treasuries more broadly, uh, and you have much less supply of bills out in the market, you're seeing a lot of pressures at the front end in, in cash markets and in the front end of the curve. Uh, so much so that the Fed has come out in just their last meeting uh, and has established a permanent uh, standing repurchase facility, both for domestic institutions as well as foreign institutions, as a way to continue to ensure uh, a smooth uh, and functioning short-term uh, uh, market at the front end of the curve. It's, it's so strange to think that given the size of the deficits we're running, that we could actually have a shortage of treasury bills. But I guess that, that is, you know, that's been one of the oddities of, uh, of 2021. Um, broadening this out, at least in terms of t a timetable here, so you've talked about the Fed's tapering, when they're going to start tapering, but can you give me a little bit more detail on what, what you're thinking in terms of you know, how the Fed proceeds in terms of its tapering, but also when we're going to get an increase in short-term interest rates. I think the Fed wants to be very careful here. Uh, they recognize that as soon as they announce a sort of tapering plan, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to dial that back or to, to walk back those plans. Um, and so I think as of today, I think the Fed will announce uh, a tapering plan at the November meeting. And I think that they will begin to taper sometime either at their December meeting or at the, the January meeting. Uh, now, the pace of tapering continues to be sort of up, up, up for question. Um, you do, I, I suspect, and, and Jerome Powell highlighted this when he was asked about the composition of, of tapering or, or when tapering would happen for treasury purchases uh, versus mortgage-backed securities. He essentially highlighted that they, the committee is leaning towards tapering them together, but did leave open the opportunity or, or the, uh, the possibility of tapering the mortgage-backed securities piece of the balance sheet more aggressively than, um, uh, than the Treasury portion of the balance sheet. Um, I think on balance, uh, the, the, the Fed will look to sort of be finished their tapering at some time in the fourth quarter of 2022, and that, leaves, that leaves, paves the way for rate hikes at some stage in, in 2023. Uh, I don't think short-term rates are going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, I do think the Fed will uh, look to keep uh, rates anchored uh, through 2022. Of course, there are some, some risks brewing in terms of additional infrastructure, higher degrees of inflation, stronger improvements in labor markets that could push the first rate hike into the fourth quarter of 2022. But I think that first hike comes in sometime in the first half of, of, of 2023. Well, of course, one of these risks has to do with, with asset bubbles. And in particular, I'm thinking about housing prices, which have been soaring all year. And you know, you could say part of that's low inventory, but clearly part of it's also low mortgage rates. And I know at the, the July FOMC meeting, Jay Powell said that they did recognize the need to reduce accommodation to prevent bubbles forming, and that they have talked about, as you mentioned, tapering the, the, the purchase of mortgage-backed securities more aggressively, although at the, starting at the same time than their, their uh, purchases of treasuries. But can, can you give me a little bit more detail on how the Fed has been involved in the mortgage-backed security market in this round of monetary stimulus? And what did you take from what Jay Powell was saying? Sure. So primarily, the Fed's been impacting the mortgage market by, of course, keeping mortgage rates low, which in turn supports demand. 
But as you mentioned, David, it's not just a, a, a rate story. There is a shortage of inventory and the nature of the pandemic has led many people to just want more space. Uh, now, the good thing is, is that the quality of borrowers has been still high quality. We, we Mortgages are not necessarily being lent out to the subprime bars that they were in 2000 and 2006 and 2007. But it's very clear that 2008 housing crisis is very fresh in some of uh, some of the the, the the governor's minds. And so they, they, they want to they, they're aware that they can't necessarily control the supply side. Um, but with home prices rising at a double digit place pace, they may want to uh, try to increase mortgages to sort of slow down uh, the demand that that we're seeing in, in the housing market. Uh, I, I do think that, as, as Powell highlighted, that this does put the potential of of, of rolling down the MBS portion of the balance sheet more aggressively than the Treasury portion. And when we looked back towards previous rounds of QE, um, the Fed ownership of the mortgage-backed security market um, in 2014 was around 33%. Uh, their ownership today is around 31%. Uh, so we're not necessarily in that that sort of 33% is sort of a, a lid on, on owner, Fed ownership of the mortgage-backed security market. But I certainly think they're recognizing that they are pushing up against that that upper limit that limit that we saw um, of their ownership back in uh, back in 2014. Um, so you know, I, I think they are aware that this is a risk out there. Uh, they are they're they're watching it and, and monitoring it closely. Uh, but they also recognize that there's limited capacity in their toolkit in order to uh, wave off a sort of housing bubble. Um, but they, I think they will do all that they can to try to um, to try to, to try to ease ease that market concern. All right, time for the toughest question. Uh, I think this is the toughest question of 2021. I mean, inflation is above trend and is expected to remain above trend into 2022. Um, the Fed's becoming incrementally more hawkish. The economy's recovering very rapidly, and yet the 10-year Treasury bond has continued to its decline. As we're recording right now, the yield is actually below 1.2%. What do you think the why do you think long maturity bond deals have fallen uh, so significantly since the first quarter? And do you think that's fundamentally justified? In short, no. Um, before the June FOMC meeting, 10-year yields were around 1.5%. And as you mentioned, David, they're now trading sub 1.2%. Now the majority of that move has been concentrated in the back end of the curve as investors have been reassessing the medium-term growth outlook and where the Fed may end up given a fairly complicated reopening process. I think this was also exacerbated by essentially bad positioning within the markets where broadly uh, markets were net short treasury markets. And so as yields uh, fell, you were on the wrong side of the trade. You end up having to go long uh, treasuries or buying treasuries to cover those cover those positions. So you sort of exacerbated uh, that, that dynamic. Um, there's also the dynamic of quantitative easing purchases and, and very, very low treasury supply that have all compounded this, this move lower in, in yields. I would also add that real yields have moved to all-time lows, which is very inconsistent with, uh, with the growth outlook. Forward real yields are now projecting a permanently impaired economic growth trajectory, particularly when compared to cyclical assets. When we look at things like the copper gold ratio, when we look at equity prices, when we look at commodities, you know, all these sort of cyclically sensitive assets are signaling that growth is going to be fairly robust, whereas real yields are, are, are not. Now, going forward, we still expect long-term bond yields will drift higher uh, and end the year between one and a half to 2% as yields sort of realign with their fundamentals 
and and given that valuations are currently pretty stretched within uh, within the bond market. Now, with that said, uh, yields may be stuck at low levels through the third quarter here. Um, you know, we still expect negative net treasury supply, uh, particularly as uh, uh, the, the debt ceiling is is not raised. Um, so until we get some resolution there, you're likely still to see net negative treasury, treasury supply come uh, to the coming to the market. And then with, a, with an abundance of liquidity, as we have talked about, as a result of quantitative easing, demand for treasuries uh, should, re should remain uh, pretty robust through the third quarter. So yields could remain sort of range bound at their low levels, uh, but our expectations is for yields to grind higher um, in the fourth quarter. Another question, which, which I think people are going to be asking a lot more going forward is, you know, it's my personal opinion that we've been very blessed in this in this country by having some excellent Fed chairs over the years, uh, Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen and now Jerome Powell. Um, now, Jerome Powell's term expires in 2022. And I guess my question is, do, do you think that he will be reappointed? And if he isn't, what do you think this means to the balance of the Federal Reserve? So my base case is that Chairman Powell will be reappointed. Um, I, I think that the there's a sense where there needs to be stability within the Federal Reserve, particularly at a time where they're beginning to shift their stance on, on monetary policy. This is that sense of stability is, is has been there, you know, in, in similar to previous administrations. And the the primary criticism, I would say, uh, from from the Democrats is that uh, it's it's the primary criticism hasn't come from monetary policy. It's really more so from bank reg regulation. And so in an environment in which, you know, potentially Jerome Powell isn't uh, reappointed in 2022, I think the makeup of the Fed probably continues to look dovish from a monetary policy perspective, but potentially looks a bit more hawkish from a bank regulation uh, perspective. And that could provide a bit of a headwind for, for the financial sector uh, more broadly. Um, it's not just Jerome Powell, I would add, uh, that is that his, his seat is up in, in 2022. There are actually three Fed seats that are up for reappointment uh, over the next year. Uh, that's Chairman Jerome Powell, uh, Randall Quarles, and Richard Clarida. Ra Randall Quarles, his term expiring in October of, of this year. So uh, as I stated, I think the most likely outcome is Powell is, re re is, is renominated. Uh, I think Lael Brainerd is elevated to vice chair of supervision, uh, replacing Quarles. And I think this would allow Biden to appoint two new board seats, um, uh, two new board seats replacing uh, for, in, in place of Brainerd and, and Clarida slots, given that there is one open seat on, on the board of governors now. So the Fed certainly has a tough job. What do you think the chances of a misstep here are? Well, David, I think it's still too early to call, but there are risks uh, of a policy misstep on both sides. I think the Fed could be slightly more hawkish uh, in an environment of you know potentially strong growth, uh, inflation expectations that 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 can, that firm, and and the Fed could be looking to either you reduce their pace of asset purchases more aggressively and be looking to hike interest rates sooner than the markets may be, may be expecting. Now, of course, that would have to be a result of particularly very, very strong growth, a very, very strong labor market um, towards the back half of the year and into 2020, uh, 2022, but it is a possibility. I think on the other end, the, the uh, Fed could also be uh, too overly accommodative um, in which they sort of kick the can down the road in, in when they announce their pace of asset purchases uh, in an economic environment, which is still very much in a recovery stage. 
And they continue to sort of fuel these asset bubbles, you know, all over, whether you look at Bitcoin, whether you look at stock stock prices, um, whether you look at meme stocks, uh, fueling, uh, continue to fuel asset bubbles, causing a, 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 a boom bust uh, type of situation in which they then have to have to respond. Uh, but I, as I mentioned, I think it's still too early to call. Um, you know, the Fed is professes themselves as data dependent. I do think they want to see some consecutive months of continued strong labor market growth. I think with second quarter GDP growth sort of uh, uh, falling below expectations, although there are still signs of, of strong GDP growth in the quarters ahead, I still think they're going to continue to be data dependent in how they, in how they tweak monetary policy uh, in the quarters ahead. Okay, so given, given all of this, both what we expect from the Fed and then all the uncertainties surrounding Fed policy and the overall macro environment, are two last questions. One is, how would you position fixed income within a portfolio? And then what would you underweight or overweight within fixed income? Well, David, as I, as I talked about, this may be actually be one of the, the, the more difficult questions to, to answer. Um, there's, we do have the expectation that treasury yields are going to rise uh, in the back half of this year. And we should also recognize that when we look across credit um, in, in a host of fixed income sectors, uh, spreads are at pretty much their all-time tights. And so going forward, you have very little spread buffer to sort of absorb any sort of move higher in, in, in yields. So with that being said, uh, you know, where are we sort of positioned within fixed income? Uh, we're certainly shorter duration. Uh, we think the intermediate part of the curve allows you to have a little bit of duration risk in case things go the wrong way. Uh, but you know, obviously you want to be sure of duration given the expectations that once treasury yields realign with fundamentals, they certainly should should move higher. You know, I think in terms of in terms of sectors, uh, we continue to, although from a relative perspective, it, it, it's it's challenging to find additional alpha um, relatively to, to, to treasuries. Credit uh, remains a, a spot for yield-seeking investors, particularly high-yield credit. Um, now, again, we don't want to go sort of uh, pinching uh, or, or picking up pennies in front of a steamroller here, uh, but we do think that there are areas in the triple C, double C parts of the high-yield market where fundamentals have continued to uh, improve. Last month was one of the first months where there were no defaults in the high-yield market. Um, and, and on a trailing 12 month uh, uh, trailing 12 month basis, the default rate is now at just two percent, well below the longer term trend of three and a half percent for defaults. And going forward, the fundamental case is still very, very supportive for credit more broadly. Um, so I think high yield credit is 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 a is a, a reasonable uh, place to park your money. There are uh, conversations. We're having more and more conversations about emerging market debt uh, as well. Currently, there are some challenges within the EMD space. Uh, we have to recognize that while developed markets can stomach higher degrees of inflation, um, emerging markets cannot. And we've already seen a host of EMs, central banks begin to start hiking rates uh, in the face of higher local inflation. And so that could cause a bit of concern for the EMD space in the quarters ahead. But with that said, as the EM economies uh, come up their curve, their vaccination curves, uh, as inflation begins to begins to cool off on a global scale, I do think that uh, EMD could be a great source of income uh, and yield for investors as we move through the back back end of this year and into 2022. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me, David.
Please tune in to our next episode when I'll be joined by my colleague Mira Pandit, Global Market Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management, to discuss the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the outlook for further fiscal stimulus. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.